Well, uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to this uh, podcast from our uh, project on China's global sharp power. Uh, I'm Larry Diamond, uh, the chair of the project. I'm joined by my colleagues, Glenn Tiffert, uh, who's the project manager and research scholar at the Hoover Institution, and by our uh, senior fellow colleague at the Hoover Institution, uh, Elizabeth Economy, uh, who is the acclaimed author uh, of uh, the recent uh, highly uh, regarded uh, and definitive study of Xi Jinping and how he's remaking China, uh, the third revolution, Xi Jinping and the new Chinese state. Uh, Liz, uh, you've been thinking about uh, the nature of uh, China's uh, Communist Party state how it's organized, how it rules, and how it's been evolving under the now eight years of Xi Jinping's uh, rule. What are the most important things that um, someone who may not be a China expert, but is concerned about China's um, rising uh, uh, projection of sharp power, what are the most important things that they should know about China's Communist Party state and how it's organized internally. So thanks so much, Larry and Glenn. It's uh, great to uh, be here with both of you. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, from the perspective of looking outside in uh, at China, um, you know, what has been surprising, uh, I think for many people over the past eight years since Xi Jinping came to power has been the degree to which he really has moved uh, China in a pretty fundamentally different direction from uh, the one that we assumed China would be going uh, in. You know, we had the sense that, you know, inevitably China would be moving toward greater economic reform and greater political reform uh, over time. It, it is what we saw, I think, uh, for much of, of uh, China's, you know, 30, 30 years um, previous to that. Um, even when it was, you know, halting and, you know, one step forward and two steps back, you still generally had the sense um, that uh, China was moving in, in a direction uh, that, uh, that we understood more toward a market uh, democracy. But I think Xi Jinping has you know, called all of that into question. And you know, he really has moved China in, in some respects in the opposite direction, right? He is a reformer, but it's all about you know, closing China, not about opening China. Uh, and so you know, I think the degree to which he has consolidated power into his own hands. You know, it was very different from the kind of collective and consensus-based decision-making uh, that we saw under Deng Xiaoping or under previous leaders. You know, the cult of personality, you know, 150 institutes in China devoted to the study of Xi Jinping thought. Um, the fact that he was able to eliminate the two-term limit you know, on the presidency uh, of the country. So he can now hold the three most important positions in the country, general secretary of the communist party and chairman of the central military commission and president of the country for life. And he's shown no indication uh, that he's uh, planning to uh, name a, a successor that he's planning to have anybody succeed him in the, in the near term. I think also, um, you know, a pretty significant difference um, has been the degree to which uh, he has strengthened the Communist Party and the degree to which he has pushed to have the Communist Party really penetrate more deeply into society and into the economy, the massive surveillance state uh, that he's put in place. You know, they want to have 500 million uh, surveillance cameras uh, in the country by the end of, of 2021. Uh, the kind of political repression that we've seen in Xinjiang or the imposition of a national security law in Hong Kong, 
Um, I guess, again, these are all things that I think many people would not have anticipated, you know, pre-2012 uh, when Xi Jinping came to power, greater constraints on the internet uh, and the greater role of the party in, in, the, in the economy, right? And in private Chinese firms uh, to the point now that, you know, nobody really believes there's any such thing as a private uh, Chinese firm because they're all required to turn over uh, whatever information the uh, Chinese government demands. So I think these are some of the pretty uh, significant shifts uh, that we've seen uh, under Xi Jinping and just the nature uh, of, of the way that China is being governed. Before I pass it uh, to my colleague, Glenn Tifford, tell us uh, a little bit about the Chinese Communist Party from the bottom up. Uh, who are these, uh, what, maybe 70 to 80 million members of the Chinese Communist Party? How do they become members? And what do you think they really believe? <laughs> So sure, there are about 90 million um, members um, of the Chinese, uh, in the Chinese Communist Party. It is the only party in China that has any real power. Um, and uh, about 50% of them have uh, two years of college education or more. Uh, you have to be 18 years old um, to become a, a party member. And it's not like joining uh, the Democrat or the Republican Party. Right, it's actually pretty selective. You have to compete uh, in many respects to get uh, accepted. You have to fill out a long uh, application uh, form that you know talks about your leadership capabilities, your commitment uh, to the Communist Party. Uh, if you make it past the first hurdle, you know there's a probationary period where you have to take tests and and learn more about communism and Marxism and Maoism and you know Xi Jinping thought. Um, so it's it's a fairly um, a uh, strenuous process. I mean, Xi Jinping himself applied 10 times uh, before he was finally accepted uh, to become a, a member. Um, uh, you know, it's a, I think the advantage is why do people do it? Um, largely, if you're ambitious and you want to have a position uh, in the Chinese government or you want to lead any kind of institution, uh, generally speaking, you have to be a member of the Communist Party. 60% of all civil service jobs are held by Communist Party members and certainly anything in the upper echelons of the Chinese government, with very, very few exceptions, uh, you need to be a Chinese Communist Party member. So for anyone who's got that kind of ambition, uh, becoming a party member is, um, is, is essential. As to what they truly believe, I, I think, um, you know, look, in the pre-Xi Jinping days, um, there were sort of not only political, but a lot of economic benefits to be had from being a, a Communist Party member. You could leverage your position in many respects uh, to make money. Um, a lot of that has, if not ended, um, certainly there's much greater risk uh, in trying to do that. Uh, and so I would say that, you know, there are certainly some, some true believers, uh, you know, in the, in the Communist Party, but there are also many, many who I think, again, understand that the path to power is paved by membership in the Communist Party. And you're not really gonna get anywhere in the system if in fact you're not a member of the party. And um, do they really believe all this Xi Jinping thought or is it purely uh, tactical compliance? Uh, look, again, there are probably as many different perspectives uh, in China as there are in the United States when it comes to politics. I think that's something important to remember, um, that just because we don't see a full range of political viewpoints and ideas, uh, that they, they exist. 
you know, and, you know, everything from people who wish that China was a full-blown democracy to people who wish that China would somehow realize a Maoist vision of a communist society. So, you know, all those, um, you know, views exist. I think within, in, in terms of the Xi Jinping thought element of it, I would say that, you know, in the entrepreneurial class, in the creative class, in the intellectual class among professors, the vast majority um, probably don't appreciate having to spend five, six, seven, or more hours every week out of their work week, you know, studying Xi Jinping thought on an app on their phone uh, that, you know, so then they would take quizzes and report them into uh, local, uh, you know, party bosses, you know, don't appreciate, you know, campaigns that say, this is how many hours of video games you can play, or uh, you can only order as many uh, plates at a restaurant as you have number of people. I think the increasing intrusiveness of the Communist Party into people's personal lives, um, more and more people find that problematic. So uh, again, political advantages to be had for being a Communist Party member. Definitely some true believers and some people who believe in what Xi Jinping is doing, um, even domestically, many more, I think, who believe in his vision for China as a great nation on the global stage. Um, but, you know, the full range of views. Liz, I wanted to pursue that point because we tend to look at China and particularly Chinese politics through the lens of the party and top down and focus on the elements of resentment against its autocratic elements of which there are many, many rich examples and lots of repression. But to some extent, there's also a populist dimension to what Xi Jinping represents, right? Um, there's a sense to which he is making China great again, that he is delivering the goods, that he's addressing certain unmet needs and say the anti corruption drive. And so I'm wondering if you could situate China, if you think China belongs in a broader kind of trend towards illiberal politics and an illiberal populism in the world, or whether China stands apart from that. Well, I think China defines illiberal, right? So, so it's easy to situate it in, in an illiberal context. Um, but I think you make a very important point, which is that, you know, when Xi Jinping first came into power, one of the things he did uh, in some ways, somewhat Maoist was to go around the intellectuals, to go around the traditional elite, down to the masses, to say, you know, I'm going to address this thing that has plagued, you know, our country, which is corruption. Corruption was manifested in so many different ways. It really was the largest source of social unrest uh, in uh, the country, and it, you know, manifested in things as small as, you know, a teacher in a school saying, you know. Uh, give me some extra money and I will put your child next to the heater, you know, in the dead of winter or a doctor saying, yeah, uh, you know, if you want this medicine, you can pay me some extra money. Uh, so, you know, at that level of corruption and then, you know, at much larger levels of corruption, you know, selling seats, you know, in the government, right. Um, you would have members of the standing committee, of the Politburo who had homes in Australia worth $30 million. You know, how, how does that happen, you know, on the salary of, of a government official? And I think that's the kind of thing where Xi Jinping really did um, appeal uh, to, you know, the broad masses of the Chinese um, populace who, who were sick of, of this kind of corruption, sick of seeing these people take advantage of their positions for personal uh, economic gain. I think that's one element of it. I think the other, which I think you also alluded to, is this sense of China as a great nation on the global stage. And here I think you do have much larger buy-in um, by a broader uh, group of, of Chinese citizens, you know, who, who all want to see, you know, 
that sense of Chinese centrality uh, uh, back on the global stage. You know, the you know, China is no longer the sick man of Asia, right? No longer, you know, the hundred years of humiliation, uh, you know, in the, in the, you know, from 19, you know, 39 or, you know, 49 to, uh, I mean, sorry, 1849 to, uh, to 1949. Uh, uh, so I think uh, many people appreciate uh, Xi Jinping's call for the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. Uh, I think that is broadly very popular. So yes, it's, there's a populist element to it um, and uh, certainly a liberal element to it as well. Excellent. Larry, do you have a closing comment? Uh, well, uh, just a closing uh, brief question, Liz. Do you uh, have any speculation about um, how long Xi Jinping might be uh, the general secretary of the Communist Party and the most powerful ruler in China and what might bring about uh, any surfacing of these latent divisions that you spoke of? So I think one of the things that Xi Jinping did, of course, was to upend the two-term limit on the presidency so he can hold these three positions you know, in perpetuity. My, my sense is um, he, he's gonna have a few defined goals that he wants to, as leader of China, for example, I think he's gonna wanna make substantial progress on reunification. Uh, of the country. And that means not only Hong Kong, where he's already made a significant uh, progress with the imposition of the national security law, basically making Hong Kong. Um, but I also think Taiwan, I think he's going to want to, to make progress on uh, unification with Taiwan. I think that's something that we really need to be paying a lot of attention to um, moving forward. I think the option for Xi Jinping that will be most attractive at some point, maybe after a third term, uh, will be for him to take a step back and assume a mantle of, for example, the chairman, uh, where he can continue to um, uh, but but not be effect a, a peaceful transition of power, uh, at least in name, if not even in reality. Uh, so I, I think that's one option. I think the other you know, possibility, um, which was maybe greater a year or so ago or be less, I think likely in the, in the next few years is that you would have a split within the leadership um, because Xi Jinping has become so repressive because there's so much international pushback uh, against his policies, you know, his human rights policies, his military adventurism in the South China Sea and the East China Sea. Um, you know, he's made China very unattractive uh, you know, as a potential global leader to, you know, much of the international community. And a lot of people in China don't like that. I mean, they do want Chinese greatness, but they don't want it to be, you know, at the cost of a positive, you know, reputation and a positive image. So, you know, is it possible that if you had a slowing economy uh, and you have all this international criticism and pushback that you'd have a kind of fractured leadership emerge uh, that at least said to Xi Jinping, you need to take a step back Right, your policies um, have put us in a place you know that we don't want to be. You know, is that possible? It's possible. I'd say at this point, though, it's um, it's rather unlikely. Elizabeth Economy, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, thank you so much for sharing your analysis with us of China and Xi Jinping's rule. My pleasure. Thanks. Mm -hmm.